Hey there, sports fan. Welcome to the Draft Site Podcast, your home for all professional sports drafts. Brought to you by DraftSite.com, the original full round mock draft site. Now let's get to the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Draft Site's 11th podcast. We're really getting up there in the numbers, DJ, right? We are almost all the dozen. We got Jared Belson, myself, and we have DJ Boyer on the line. Zach may or may not be joining us because he's in a state of apprehension with his Ohio State Buckeyes playing at 8.30 today against Oregon. DJ, any thoughts on who might be the victor in tonight's game? I can see this going either way. Really like what Ohio State's done and how far they've come, especially with that third-string quarterback. They've overcome a lot of adversity. But I am personally pulling for Oregon just because this was the team that I had picked in the preseason. I kind of had that duck feeling. But, but again, if anything, uh, the ratings were through the roof. It, it's been a tremendous success. Uh, it looks like this is, uh, it, by all accounts, this maybe could uh, rival the Super Bowl in just a few years. There is just a tremendous buzz surrounding this game. And, and the fact that it's got to be a win-win, the NCAA has to be happy that you know, the, the national championship game, had you gone and looked at this uh, the way it had been done in years past, this was probably, we were probably looking at Alabama, Florida State for the title, and neither team makes it. Uh, the two teams underneath uh, that I think would have been on the outside looking in, Oregon, Ohio State probably would have played in, in a secondary game, and now they're playing for the national championship. So that speaks volumes. I think that the playoff worked, and the NCAA has to be very, very happy. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if in the next year or two they expanded out to eight games. What do you think will be the catalyst for them to do that, TJ? Uh, ching, ching, more money, uh, more games. Um, I think eight or six. I've been calling for six all along. I thought maybe finishing with one of those top two um, it would get you that first round by, and maybe there would be kind of like the play-in games, kind of like we see in the NFL. And I think we're going to see a change there this year. I think we're going to see one you know, on the NFL side, I think we're going to go from 12 to 14 teams. I think now only the top team is only going to get the uh, the bye. Uh, this year that would have meant the Eagles and the Texans actually would have made the uh, the postseason. So, again, that's a couple more games. That's the NFL. It's, you know, it's all about the money right now, and right now the demand is there. Uh, I, I really think that uh, we're, we're going to see expansion in the NCAA and uh, the NFL. The NFL first, NCAA probably a couple years down the road. I'd be very curious to look at the rating, uh, the bowl games, outside of the college playoff bowl games, but the actual just every other bowl game versus last year because I think that was the big thing is that when you have a college football playoff, all of a sudden it devalues the rest of the bowl games. And that's obviously true for what was traditionally the BCS bowl games, but for other games like the Outback Bowl, you know, do people care less? And... um I'd be curious to compare this year's numbers to last year's numbers. DJ, do you happen to happen to know if there was any rise or fall? I, do, I, do, I think some of the, the secondary bowl games, they, they've seen a little bit of a fall there. But as far as the they, – they've kind of taken those primary games, and it's not just January 1st anymore. I think they're really considering that the 31st and the 1st. Uh, those were either on par or, or up a little bit from last year. So – I think if they find a way somehow to make those uh, the bowls, which started started later this year, which is good, December 20th is when we saw our, we we actually had five bowl games on that day. They're able to make those games um, a little more attractive and and get some of the numbers up there. I think that they've they've got a win win all around. So if the NFL expanded the playoffs and added another team, that would probably mean that 
Philadelphia and it would have been Houston this year. Though, yeah, based on the uh, the way everything played out, probably it would have been the yeah the Texans and the Eagles. Texans would have ended up playing the Broncos, which I think would have been a good game, especially after we saw. Uh, even with the extra the extra week and and the health of Peyton Manning becoming a factor, that uh, that game could have swung, especially with uh, with JJ Watt chasing anybody down. He's he's able to uh, change the course of any game. We've already seen uh, Green Bay kind of lay waste to Philadelphia, so I think uh, that that would have been kind of history repeating itself. So we would have only had uh, the Patriots and the Seahawks with the uh, first round buys. Well, I think all of that though, you know. It- it kind of lessens the importance of some of those games at the end, especially the divisional games at the end of the season, um, you know, because it's already tough. Uh, so Pittsburgh and Baltimore played each other, right? Or, or was it Pittsburgh and Cincinnati who played at the end of the year? And mm-hmm. anyway, all three of them made it. And you start adding another team, you're going to have more and more situations like that. And it takes away from a lot of the fun, a lot of the rivalry, um, you know, because – as much as you don't want to be that team that gets knocked out, if you're that team that beats one of your division rivals and knocks them out of the playoffs, that's huge. And that only adds to the fury and the fire. So I think the NFL better be careful if they start expanding it too much and too fast. Yeah, I think you. Uh, it's always a good thing. I know, I know the, the money has just been a tremendous, especially with you know, you know, the draft being our main focus. It's of the four major sports that the draft for the NFL is viewed and you know, so much more than any of the other sports, probably all the, the other sports combined. The NBA is a, does a pretty good job as well, but it, the NFL is just where it's at right now. So, but, but again, you don't want to saturate things a little too much or, or, or really starting to, to cheapen the product on the field by having more teams or, uh, you know, more teams making the postseason. You're you're getting to the point now. We'd, we'd be at 14 out of 32, where you're approaching that. You know, half the teams are going to make the playoffs. So, I'm not quite sure. There's there's some positives about it. There's some negatives. I'm not I'm not quite sure where I sit on this. The only thing I really like about it is I do like the idea of only one team getting that that uh, postseason by. I think that makes some of those teams down the stretch who they think they're in that first or second hole. With two teams making a bye, they start resting some of those star players. I don't think you'd see as much as that if uh, there's only one spot to go around. So I think that um, might be a little more attractive. But there are, there are a lot of drawbacks as well. So, uh, but but again, more games. We, we've heard about the NFL wanting to go to 18 games for for so long, which I think would be a horrible mistake. So I think maybe this is the compromise that they'd be looking for. I get what the NFL is trying to do, and I think you're right. It does cheapen the brand. Um, you know, but at the same point, it, it does that initially. But they've proven over the course of time that whatever change they make ends up kind of working out. I mean, at one point, what was it before? It was 16 games. There were less games, and I'm sure everyone had that same argument. Oh, if we had more games, there's going to be going to cheapen you know the product on the field. And you know, when the draft was converted to three days. I hated it. I mean, Saturday and Sunday of the draft was my, you know, vacation. That was my favorite two days of the year. And then all of a sudden they started putting on Friday night, they started putting on Thursday night. And I said, this, this sucks. This is going to, this is going to be, um, you know, no one's going to care about it. It's going to be too much coverage. And then what happened? The ratings just, you know, skyrocket and they're primetime events. And, uh, it's, you know, great for draft side. I mean, we have more to talk about, more days, and, uh, you know, more people uh, hopefully coming to the site. 
But I think with the NFL, it could, you could see the same thing. If you add a few more games, if you add two more games, that's two more weeks of coverage. Now, I'm already sick of some of the NFL coverage by the end of the year sometimes, but two more games, uh, two more weeks of coverage is, is pretty substantial when it comes to the bottom line. And two more teams added to the playoffs is two more streams of revenue from those particular cities. So there's a lot of, from the financial standpoint, there's a lot to lose potentially, but there's even more to gain, in my opinion. Absolutely. I think there's, this is going to be one of the most uh, top about, talked about topics in the, in the offseason, as well as maybe some of these rule changes. Of course, the Dallas uh, just, just seem to be a lightning rod right now. They, they can't seem to be involved in a game that doesn't end in, in some kind of controversial call. Or uh, the fact that uh, I, I think the, the immediate change we're going to see is what we saw with uh, the Patriots and the substitution of players, which technically is within the rules. But, you know, New England has been famous for kind of bending the rules or doing things that no one else has seen to their benefit. So I think the I think it really left the, the bad taste in a lot of people's mouths, uh, myself included. Um, but, again, it was within the rules. Technically, they weren't breaking any rules. But, uh you know, they only seem to do things like that when they're when they're definitely down, trying to gain that that advantage. I, I think that's something that uh, is going to be stopped, and there's going to have to be a a new way, or, or or players that are actually ineligible are going to have to be announced as well, other than just players who come in at uh, normal spots that are not eligible, like uh, offensive linemen uh, that are that are eligible receivers. I think we're going to see a, a change with that as well, what we saw in the, the Patriot Raven game. Yeah, I, I could definitely see that amongst other things. I think, you know, with the Patriots, they become easier and easier to hate when they, uh, when they do things like that. Um, at the same point, you know, that's life. That's how life works. There's, uh, there's a lot of people who bend the rules, try to find little loopholes and, and make it work and do it until they're caught and told to stop. And, and unfortunately, they become the successful ones and they're, they're the ones that we, uh, ones that we despise sometimes for not doing things the right way, but uh, at the end of the day, you know, sometimes it works and sometimes it works in their benefit. Sometimes a rule change like this, they might actually, you know, turn it the other way, and we might actually see more teams trying this philosophy next year because maybe they say, well, it adds another element of surprise on the field, which it certainly did. The NFL competition committee meets every year. I'm sure they'll be discussing this one pretty hard. But the thing that I hate the most is the coaching changes. Um, you know, we just saw today John Fox is leaving the Denver Broncos. And I get it. There's a lot of people out there who say John Fox can't win a championship. Sometimes I look at him and I see his demeanor and his kind of wiry attitude and say, you know, okay, this guy's not composed. He's not like the coaches that win a Super Bowl who – stay composed throughout every single game and every single second. But at the same time, I say, well, what was – remember Denver before John Fox? And obviously Peyton Manning brings a totally different element. But before Peyton got there, I think he was there for a year, and he had Tim Tebow, and he led that team to a monstrous season. And then what did Tim Tebow do after that? Nothing. So I think when you look at him as a coach – He's exceptional, and I think Denver is going down a very, very dangerous road by thinking that they could bring on another coach and just be successful. Because in my mind, Peyton Manning doesn't necessarily want to go doesn't want to necessarily go through another year and another coach. He went to Denver because he had a lot of 
crappy teams to choose from, and Denver had the most experienced coach in John Fox. That was definitely his best bet. Indianapolis, I mean, Tony Dungy was the same way. Sometimes it just takes, you know, one lucky break one year, and you can get past there. And I think consistency is what really helps teams. And I think the only reason you get rid of John Fox is if you feel there's someone better internally to lead them. But if you're going to start all over again, I think that's a huge, huge risk, especially with Peyton Manning debating his next steps in his career. Well, I think it's uh, obviously we got to start thinking is uh, Denver actually going to be looking at a quarterback at some point in this draft. I think they're uh, what they're going to do in the, the offseason about maybe bringing in a veteran or trying to take that young uh, quarterback to mold because there's going to be another uh, coach coming in. So I think that's going to tip the hand there because I don't think Brock Osweiler is, is the future there in Denver. Uh, you know, a, a guy that, you know, had a lot of talent, but really uh, at, at the college level, really there there's still a lot of uh, unanswered questions. A guy who was still very green when he was drafted, really just based a lot upon potential. Uh, when he actually played in the uh, in the Pac-10, you know, the, the uh, quarterback there, he, he was actually supposed to uh, be a uh, basketball player first, was actually a, a forward for Gonzaga, and actually was kind of lured away going to Arizona for, uh, you know, to play the uh, quarterback position. So it was something that uh, Osweiler was not really kind of that, that blue-chip recruit in, in football, but, you know, 6'8", uh, just has that huge stature, had, but doesn't have that rocket arm. Uh, he, he's shown... He showed some stretches where, you know, he really showed some good touch and can move around the pocket and, and be effective, but he still just does not scream, you know, a franchise quarterback. So really want to want to look what's going to happen there in Denver. Maybe it's, uh, you know, reclining the past because to me this screams Mike Shanahan coming back. We've heard so many, so much about uh, Mike Shanahan being a, a rumor wow. for the Bills job. There, there was actually talk about him going to Chicago and maybe reuniting with Jay Cutler. I haven't heard the whispers yet, but to me – You've got John Elway, you know, kind of leading leading the team there. Uh, the quarterback that uh, Shanahan partnered with and won two Super Bowls. If Shanahan wants back in the league that badly, uh, this this could be a, a reuniting of sorts. I'm really waiting to to hear the Mike Shanahan to Denver rumors starting. To, to me, I, I, it just almost seems like this was a little too convenient. Like something has to be going on. Either Elway and the Broncos have something in mind, or, or Fox really wanted out that bad. So it is bringing in a new regime per se, but you know, kind of reharking the past. I think Mike Shanahan in Denver, uh, it'll, it'll get a lot of people excited. You know, obviously, you know, with two championships and all the success that he had with the franchise, that would probably get a lot of fans on board. That's a very interesting thought that I hadn't even thought of. I mean, my first instinct was, well, they want to keep Adam Gates and they don't, if that's how you say his name, and they don't want to lose him to another team and then have John Fox retire in a year or two. So my first thought was, well, let's keep our offensive coordinator as our head coach for the future, and then we have a young guy we can keep for the next 10 years. But Mike Shanahan, that is, my mind was just blown. I didn't even think about that. I love it. That's a, that would be very interesting. Waiting to hear if that happens, Andy, what, what you just thought of, I mean, you know, being a Philadelphia fan and following them, that's kind of what the Eagles had done for a while with, with Ron Rivera. They, they had him on staff. They tried to keep him around. Wasn't working. Uh, you know, Andy Reid stayed there for a long time. He kind of uh, slipped through and left, and there's a lot of people that I think they'd kind of let go when you look at who was there on staff that were, were seen as 
potential head coaches for the future. John Harbaugh being the special, the, the special teams coach there, he was another guy that many people in that organization thought, hey, you know, sometime down the road this could be our head coach. And uh, sometimes staying with a with a coach too long, uh, sometimes you, you do let some quality people go. I mean, we, we talked at length in some of our past shows about not pulling the trigger with coaching changes quickly. And a lot of times that's the way to go, but sometimes you do it at the expense of some very good people on your staff. I mean, just looking at Andy Reid's coaching tree, let's see, you have Brad Childress, who had some success in Minnesota, John Harbaugh, as you say, Steve Spagnola, Ron Rivera, Leslie Frazier. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that's that's a pretty good tree. I can't say they had the, the greatest success in the NFL. I, uh, are, are there any coaches out there right now that you think have the coach of the future underneath them on their team? I really think uh, Bowles there, the uh, the defensive coordinator with Arizona. I, I'm I'm thinking that's a name that we're going to hear more and more about. Uh, Darren Bevel, we've heard so much about it in Seattle. There's a couple of guys that are out there. Another one you can even add potentially from that Andy Reid coaching tree, Sean McDermott, who's been uh, the defensive coordinator actually with Carolina, actually served in that role uh, after the death of uh, Jimmy Johnson in uh, in Philadelphia as, as the defensive coordinator. He's actually being tossed around in a, in a couple of uh, situations, possibly even the Jets being interested there. So, And, and you know, we are hearing more and more about Shanahan, possibly, uh, you know, with a couple of stops. And like I said, it, it made more sense at first, maybe with the Jay Cutler reunion, if, if you want to stay with that after that monster contract to try and reunite him with the coach that actually selected him 11th overall. I don't know, this Denver thing seems a little too convenient. So there's a couple of good names out there, possibly even Todd Haley uh, getting back in. Uh, you know, he had been the head coach with Kansas City for a while. Took a little while for the offense to kind of take shape in Pittsburgh, but I think that is one of the more exciting offenses in the league. And he was responsible for bringing a lot of the personnel in, uh, people like Antonio Brown, like Le'Veon Bell, that, and kind of changing the look for that offense, not being the, the same old ground-and-pound Steelers that we had seen uh, over the course of so many years. So really been kind of uh, taking shape there and, and changing the perspective. So maybe even uh, Todd Haley gets a second chance at some point. That'd be interesting. I think some of the guys cur- uh, currently in the playoffs right now are getting some looks. Dan Quinn on Seattle. Any other guys in the Final Four right now that you think have assistant coaches that will likely get a shot at a head coach next year? Uh, in the Final Four... No, I, I, again, I think uh, you know a couple of the, the Seattle person uh, people that we're mentioning. Um, not a not a whole lot that I can think of out of Green Bay or Indianapolis per se either. So, um, and, and then of course with New England, every now and again we hear a little bit about Josh McDaniels maybe getting back in there, but but I don't see that happening. I think there's an obvious comfort level there with him running the offense in New England. So again, I, I really. Um, Todd Bowles, uh, the, the uh, coordinator in, in Arizona, is a guy who I really would like to see get a get a chance at some point. I really, really like what he's been able to do in Arizona, and he's really done a great job with, with a lot of his stars. You know, Hurt, they had to go so long last year without Tyron Matthew and losing Darnell Dockett at the beginning of the season. And they had that unfortunate chop block with Julius Thomas on Calais Campbell, who I really believe is, has emerged as one of the more disruptive defensive ends in this league. He's really done a not only a good job with the personnel there, but he always seems to have to pick up the pieces and play with a lot of the injuries they had. It wasn't just on the offensive side of the ball, quarterback and running back. There was a lot of injuries on that defense, and that was a very, very good defense. And unfortunately, 
I think they were just on the field a little too long at the end of the season with, with the quarterback situation, what it was. Unfortunately, Arizona was just not able to sustain drives. I think it made that defense look a little worse than what it actually was. Well, you also got to wonder, too, with Jack Del Rio. We're hearing so much about him possibly being, being the guy in Oakland now. You, know, I, you really got to commend the Raiders with what they did with Tony, Tony Sperano actually wearing that interim head coach. And, and I think that really let the, the Raiders kind of take their time with this. They didn't feel rushed. It, it seems like the last the coaching carousel that's gone on there, it just seems like their decisions have been kind of rushed. They really haven't taken their time. You get the feeling there, Sperano's not the guy that they want long-term, but at the same time, the team was playing hard for him. I don't – it necessarily feels like if the right guy's not there, they can still sit for a year or two until the right guy becomes available. So I think that uh, there's, that's brought a level of comfort to the Raiders. But Jack Del Rio, you know, a lot of success uh, we had seen with him in Jacksonville. I think he was the head coach there for eight years. You know, definitely a lot of success there. Very good uh, – Spot linebacker at times and was a very good special teams player in the NFL. So uh, a guy that I think might be able to bring a little bit of that swagger, a little bit of that uh, kind of that rough edge back to to Oakland as well, something that they've lost over the last four to five seasons. Now, what do you think, uh, speaking of assistance here, what do you think Dick LeBeau does? That's a good question. I was a little bit surprised by that. I mean, he seems to have been defying father time for the, for the, long, uh, for the longest time he was. I believe he was the oldest uh, assistant coach at the NFL level. So I'm not quite sure what he's what he's going to do here. I was, uh, you know, I thought a couple of years ago, we toward the end of the year, you always kind of thought, you know, is this going to be it for for Dick LeBeau? Is this the swan song? But this is kind of the one year we hadn't really heard too much about it, and it, it seems to be this is the year that he's kind of stepped aside. So not quite sure if there's lined else there lined up, or maybe he's just wants to take a, a year or two away from football, something like a Monty Kiffin or another very accomplished player on the or coordinator on the defensive side of the ball has done, maybe just kind of step away and recharge himself for one one last run and, and, and maybe take maybe a full a full season away or, you know, just part of the season and just kind of weigh his options and see what sees what kinds of uh, opportunities open up with the coaching carousel right. and the bevy of movement that we see every year. Yeah, I mean, there's talks of him uh, reuniting with Arians in Arizona, which would uh, which would be a natural fit. I mean, they have a lot of Pittsburgh guys over there. You know, there's there's a lot of there's so many good coaching vacancies right now, um, which you know makes it pretty exciting for coaches who are available. And now you look at teams like San Francisco; they had a down year, but you know, if you you know you get a decent coach in there, they're they're right back in the playoff hunt. Uh, the Jets are probably far. Oakland's probably far. But I think um, there's really some great opportunities. I mean, um, Rex Ryan, I think, is going to do some good things in Buffalo. He's bringing in um, Greg Roman, I think. You know, I, I think it, it's a good year to be on the free agent market because you have some opportunities, and all you need to do is really um, sell yourself a little bit. Good things might come. But I'm, I'm interested yeah, to see what Doug Marone does also. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering if a, if a place like San Francisco would, would possibly be a spot there, or, or maybe even John Fox stepping away from Denver. But San Francisco is not really a spot where it seems like a person with that, that iron fist mentality has to come in there and kind of structure the way things are done. I think uh, just someone who's got some experience who's been with the big game before, uh, I think that that is something that would be very attractive to San Francisco. If, if John Fox ends up anywhere, the 49ers, to me, it, it would – I think it would 
would be a logical fit. Daryl Bevel, obviously, you know, we're speaking of the Final Four. I mean, he's definitely a candidate for any of these open positions. Pep Hamilton, I know, has gotten a lot of talk. Um, I think, you know, in terms of retread, Scott Linehan, I think someone's at some point, if it's not this year or next year, might give him another shot to prove himself after such a successful year at the Cowboys uh, with, with Dallas. Pat Shermer might get another chance somewhere. Um, yeah, and I haven't really heard a lot about uh, Gary Kubiak, but, you know, the successful year that he had in Baltimore here. You know, Baltimore was really in that game, and, you know, it, you got to figure if they, if they win that game, they've got a, a pretty good chance of playing against Indianapolis. So, you know, Kubiak was successful a number of years in Houston there. So, um, don't know if maybe this year, but but maybe, what you know, putting up another successful run another year or two like that, we might start to hear, uh, as far as retreads, Gary Kubiak's name being tossed around as well. Right, and he's actually been asked to be on, uh, to go on a lot of interviews, but he's, he's declined them, he said, so far, and he's pretty excited to stay. But that brings up an interesting point. You talk about John Elway, who's his offensive coordinator towards the end of his career. I'm not mistaken, it's Gary Kubiak. That's a good point as well. So you hadn't thought of Shanahan, I hadn't thought of Kubiak there, so there we go. Good team. Teamwork. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, let's let's make some quick predictions for this week's uh, Final Four playoff round in the NFL. Who's taking Who's taking home the cake this year? I'm really just sticking to my guns with Seattle. Uh, I I thought that you know Carolina played some inspired ball there. It was a little more than I thought we were going to see out of Cam Newton. But but once Seattle scored, made that 24 to 10. Even though Cam Newton had been moving down the field, that just had the feel. I was call, I pretty much called pick six about two plays before it happened. It seemed like he was making plays, but he was just holding on to the ball a little too long, kind of improvising. I almost got the feeling that Seattle was kind of luring him into something. So it was just one of those things where everything just slows down, and I pretty much just saw it happen. And, again, Russell Wilson just playing masterfully, and just about anyone can step up in that passing game. It's really good to see uh, Wilson playing such a, a big role in that passing attack, especially after losing uh, the other Wilson, Zach Wilson, uh, you know, earlier in the season. Uh, he's, he's really stepped up and, and played a real vital role in that offense. As far as the AFC, I mean, you've got to like the Patriots, and they really laid waste to the, to the Colts when they had played them before. But there's just something about Andrew Luck. He is just just willing himself, and, and, and the fact that, you know, with, with Boom Heron, not the greatest running back that we've seen, but this is seems to be the, the best fit that we've seen in that Indianapolis uh, backfield to the point where Trent Richardson wasn't even active this past week. So, uh, you know, Boom Heron has really paid dividends. I believe he's caught 17 passes now in the playoffs. He was 10, and then he had another seven this past week, uh, just playing a, a very, very vital role with that, kind of that short passing game, which is, for Indianapolis, that's almost like their running game, the little four- or five-yard passes, because they can't sustain a, a running game with, with any type of consistency. So you got to like what's going on there. And Andrew Luck is it, it just seems like they go one step further every time, one step further. So you got to wonder if, if they do lose here, that maybe he's just setting himself up as, as maybe the next quarterback that's kind of destined for greatness and, and going to be making a run. And we're going to see this over the next four to five years where – He'll get a Super Bowl or two. It really has that feeling. I wouldn't want to bend against him right now. My my mind says Patriots, but there's just something about what Andrew Luck is doing. Uh, we could see uh, uh, Andrew Luck and, and Russell Wilson in the Super Bowl, and I, I don't want to discount the Packers by any means. 
very gutsy performance by Aaron Rodgers. If it, with that type of offense, you don't want to, to count them out at, at any point. But I really think they're just going to be a little too one-dimensional. I think Seattle will be able to stop that running attack, and Eddie Lacy has really just laid the groundwork. If it's not running the football, it's just the threat. They have a very capable running back there and opens up more things for, for Aaron Rodgers, who is only two and three. He was only one and three in his last uh, four playoff appearances since winning that Super Bowl. So he's had some good playoff games, but you know hasn't really had those string of lights out performances. So right now I would have to say Seattle and New England. I, I really like Seattle against Green Bay. So if, if any of the top seats fall off, I, I think it could be New England, but I don't see it happening. See, I think it's uh, I think it's important not to discount the Packers' defense, which most people do, and I, and I'm not saying it's exceptional. Um, you know, they they held to they held Dallas to a modest 21 points, but really, when you look at their roster, and I know DJ, you and I have been watching the Packers draft closely for years, and you know, I know we both know that they draft well. They draft guys who can play in college. They draft guys, they don't you know, necessarily just draft guys for potential. They draft guys who can come in, who can brawl. And, you know, they've shown year after year that guys will come out of nowhere, you know, in, in fans' eyes. In our eyes, we know all about them. You know, they might be a seventh-round pick, but they were, you know, all-American all at Iowa or something. And I think the Packers' defense is starting to come together a little bit more. Um, that's the thing that everyone overlooks is that they have the defense to be successful. Now, they haven't always put it together, but you look at, you know, Nick Perry had a great game. You have Nick Perry, Julius Peppers, who actually had a sack, and Clay Matthews on the outside. That's pretty tough to contain. And then you look at their line, but then there's guys like Mike Daniels, Mike Neal, Dayton Jones. I mean, all these guys, they were, they were great prospects. We knew very well about them. And, you know, you get guys like Sam Barrington, uh, who's a seventh-round pick out of South Florida, and he could have gone to any other program. He might not have been successful. He was successful in college. But you go to the Green Bay Packers, and you're in, a, you're in a great support system, a team that treats every player, no matter where you're drafted, the same. And you have a chance of success. And I think, I think this defense is starting to come together a little bit. Um, and I think, you know, a couple of years ago, we said their defense was fantastic, especially in the secondary. Uh, they still have young guys like Casey Hayward, Devon House, who are starting to play even better. Tremont Williams, Sam Shields. I mean, their secondary is, is getting better. And then you look at the safety position. Morgan Burnett was my favorite player in that year's draft five years ago. But now they got Clinton Dix, who's been playing great all year, Mika Hyde. So I just think, you know, really all it takes for them is just something to click, and, and they could be as good of a defense as any other. With that in mind, it's it's tough to discount them, and I think they're well-balanced. But I think the beauty of this, this week's uh, playoff games are that we're getting four of the best teams in the league. I mean, four of the best, maybe six. Had Denver won, I don't know when the last time we saw we would have seen four teams who got the bye make it all the way to the conference championships. I mean, usually there's one team that gets knocked out, as we saw this year, which was uh, Denver. But I think it's exciting for Indianapolis. I think they also, you know, they have they have young guys stepping up. Um, I think this week, you know, we talked about Boom Heron, who's undrafted. Uh, let's talk about another undrafted guy, Zerlin Tipton, 
who might uh, tiptoe his way into um, some big games. I mean, he had yeah another four yards again. Yeah, absolutely. Another undrafted guy, and you know, I know we remember him from his junior year when he uh, when he had 19 touchdowns, I think almost 1,500 yards at Central Michigan. Uh, senior year, I think he got a big injury, which is why he was overlooked. But his the talent's there. You know, that's the thing with the Indianapolis Colts too. They uh, they had a great draft. They they continue to draft well. They're not forced to play their their players, and and they step up at the end of the season every year. We see. The teams that draft well make it the furthest because in the NFL, there's injuries every single game. And if you don't have depth at every position, you're not, you're not going to last long. And that's why that's, that's what we see every year. And we're seeing that with these top four teams. There's, there's a reason their drafts are pretty successful, and they have a lot of homegrown players who are making an impact right now. And with, with Indianapolis, you're talking about a team that, that – put itself in the hole. They had lost their first-round pick in the deal for Trent Richardson the year before. So Indianapolis is doing this without a first-round selection this past year. You're talking about the two guys at the running back position getting it done who were went undrafted. You've got Trent basically, and who basically busted out in Cleveland where they were able to get a first-round pick and a guy that was selected third overall in the draft. So it's not always about draft position. It's finding those diamonds in the rough or people that are Produced or able to fit your system. And with Indianapolis, one of the guys they took early on, Jack Muhort, uh, Ohio State Buckeye, who will probably be watching his alma mater tonight, but uh, a tackle, a right tackle predominantly most of his career uh, at Ohio State, kind of stepped in at the guard position. And, and that's a guy who was, was playing from, from day one and was not looked at as a, he was looked at as kind of a, a mid round, maybe prospect that you could keep for a couple years and Maybe he could be an, a, eventually a starting right tackle, and they, they moved him in. They, they used him inside, and starting guard from the very first week in Indianapolis really found a gem there, uh, and especially with – they even had him playing some center because Indianapolis has really been juggling players at the center position. I believe they now had four different players start at that position this past year. It's one of the places I think Indianapolis may look early in this draft is more interior line help. But uh, Jack Mewhart's been a, a very good uh, pick for them. Dante, uh, Dante Moncrief, West Mississippi early, had all the talent in the world, really first-round talent, flipped into the third round. And, you know, Indiana, he started slow. We didn't really see a lot of him in the beginning of the season. And now we see him developing into, you know, I, I think could be a very legitimate number two threat, you know, with, with Rich Wayne aging, put him with T.Y. Hilton. You've got a, a couple of very good targets. Very similar to Green Bay with what we saw with uh, Devontae Adams out of Fresno State. Another rookie that took some time, but down the stretch, made some big catches, and he was the guy who really got it done with, uh, I believe it was 117 yards this past week, and big uh, 49-yard touchdown for Green Bay. So a couple of very good receiving threats, and I believe uh, both uh, a third and I believe a fourth-round pick. So just in those mid-round stages, it doesn't always have to be a first-round pick to have that big impact. Yeah, and the beauty about these teams is that, you know, because they don't have, they can play the best guy right away as opposed to plugging in the first round picks. Yeah, you know, they have some young guys who they haven't had to test just yet. Um, you know, how about Indianapolis? What do you think? Do you think Jorn Werner, Werner has a chance still at being successful? Uh, I, I really, he was looking like a bust. He really was. He really kind of disappointed his first year. The second half of the season, I think he stepped up, and, and again, what you talked about with, with depth, they really had to move him into 
more of an unnatural position for him, play a little more along the interior, and he's he responded well. Again, he's not putting up the monster stats, but uh, he's a guy who's kind of more or less been opening up holes and playing his lane and assignments, and, and it's led to some other people uh, making – I mean, he's making plays himself, but a lot of times he's doing the dirty work and the, the things that don't show up in the box score in order for other people to get it done. So I think they've been they've been happy – with his development this past year. So, um, again, I'm not sure he's ever going to be that star. uh, uh, And and he was a person I was a little bit leery about. But, you know, with with Florida State, it's kind of hit or miss. I do like what what Baltimore got out of a player like Timmy Jernigan. He's really, really playing well. Um, He's actually shown me a little more than what I thought. And I know that that was a player that the Giants were looking at very hard. So, uh, uh, there were there were a couple teams. I know the Giants and the Falcons were looking at him very very hard, and, and Baltimore surprised a lot of teams when they took him as early as they did. But it looks like it's really played dividends, especially down the stretch with Holodi Nada having that four game suspension uh, gave him a chance to showcase his talents a little bit more. So again, it's not always the big names, and that's actually something. That, it's a great segue if we got a little bit of time. I'd love to. I yeah. look back at who I thought. I had as my top 32 heading into uh, the beginning of the season and, and where they stand now. And, you know, there's some that you look at and you're like, yeah, absolutely, made a good call there. And others where you look at it now and you're just like, wow, the, just kind of a, a hit and a miss and just how one year uh, can really make a big difference. Sometimes you make uh, – sometimes you think a little more of players. And, again, sometimes it works out in your favor, sometimes it doesn't. But I'm uh, I'm not too proud to actually – go out and say they, they, these were my top 32 when the season began. So uh, there's a couple that miss. Hey, you know what? That's, uh, that's life. We don't hit them all. If, uh, I was a thousand. Yeah, that's, that's the NFL draft. I think if you talk to any NFL team draft. in the league, they would, have the same, they would have the same reaction. I'm sure they have guys at the top of their draft at the beginning of the year who have, uh, who have turned into undrafted free agents on their boards. Well, my, but I can say with, with authority, my number one player, and I've said this all year, has been Leonard Williams from USC. I still think he is the most talented player in this draft. He will be a top five pick. So got to look at it there. My number two prospect going into this season was Vic Beasley, the defensive end from uh, Clemson. Should be playing linebacker at the NFL level. He will be a first-rounder. I think his stock has slipped a little bit. I, I'm, out last, I'm out last year. He would have been picked a little bit higher. I think he was – guaranteed to be a top 10 selection last year. There's still a chance he ends up there this year, but I think he's more in that maybe 12 to 20 range. I think in the last mock, I have him going 13th overall to, to New Orleans. But again, got to be number two, two uh, prospect going in. Uh, my number three heading into the year was Brandon Scherf, the offensive tackle from Iowa. Uh, it does look like he's got a very good chance of being the first tackle uh, off the board. Currently have him at number five with the Redskins in the latest mock. And the quarterbacks that have drawn so much attention against, again, Marcus Mariota has not officially declared yet. Uh, many people feel he will once uh, the game ends tonight. But I had uh, Winston, Jameis Winston at number four, Marcus Mariota at number six. That's where I had the two quarterbacks heading. And the guy I had at number five, we talked about this yesterday a little bit and how shocked we were, Shalikwe Calhoun was my number five prospect coming into this year. Uh, he mm-hmm. has slipped down the boards a bit. There was some talk that uh, he actually got a second-round grade from the NFL Draft Advisory Committee, and it's enough to actually send him back to Michigan State. And, again, oh, better, better for a college football fans. 
better for college football because the guy had it number seven. Again, this was before everything broke. You never know what's going to happen. My number seven prospect going into this year and my top wide receiver was Doriel Green, uh, Beckham Green, the uh, wide receiver from Missouri. And then we saw what happened, dismissed from the team. He goes to Oklahoma. He's got to sit out a year, but now he's, you know, thwarted those plans and he will go into the, he's made himself eligible for the draft. Still feel that he is probably going to be taken in the first round because it's just the freakish athletic ability that, that he possesses. Um, and actually, even though it's not their biggest need, we've seen what big receivers mean in size to a player like Chip Kelly. If he's sitting there at number 20, don't be surprised if the Eagles take a player like him uh, to, to pair with Jordan Matthews, a 6'3", 6'4", receiver for, for down the stretch, especially uh, we're not a 100% sure that they're going to uh, be able to retain the services of Jeremy Macklin. I think they're going to make him a contract, but with Macklin having such a good year, you got to wonder, is it going to be enough to actually keep him in Philadelphia? Uh, my, no- my number eight player was Lenardrick McKinney, who has declared he is uh, looked at as a second-round prospect. I took a little bit of a gamble on him. He had a fantastic freshman year at Mississippi State, really fell off as a sophomore. But going into this year, I really was kind of betting on him here. Great year, emerging as a top-ten prospect. He didn't quite get that that high, but I've currently got him uh, 40th overall, second uh, solid second-round prospect. Shane Ray kind of really emerged as the a linebacker uh, in in the SEC that really turned a lot of heads, but but McKinney was was an All Conference linebacker, had a very good year. I had him in number eight. Ellis McCarthy, the defensive tackle from UCLA, I was betting on him. Oh, to my be guy. The, uh, the next big thing, I thought he was going to be be the guy. Uh, he did. He played well, but some other players like uh, Kenny Clark kind of I think took a little bit of his thunder there. Really hasn't had a chance to showcase his abilities too much. Well, it looks like he. He will be coming back. He's not going to declare yet. Now, number 10, I did have Landon Collins there, the uh, the safety from Alabama. He has established himself as the top safety there. That's a, probably about where he'll go. I have your Giants taking him at number nine. So that uh, that's about where he was. And had kind of a run on offensive lineman after that. At number 11, a guy that at, at some point some people were saying he was a possible top uh, draft pick was, was Cedric Ogbwehi, the offensive tackle from Texas A&M, who I, I think really – could have been a top 10 pick had he come out last year and, and now has probably slipped to the end of the first round, maybe into the top of the stages of round two. But I think if he falls too far, people know just how talented he is and they'll actually snap him up. Andres Pete, the offensive tackle from Stanford, I had at number 12. He has declared he, he could actually be a top 10 pick. Jalen Strong was my number 13 prospect going into the year, the wide receiver from Arizona State, who... I currently got going number 15. Uh, I, I don't think he, he had more of the year Amari Cooper. We're, down the, we're down, the, down the way a little bit. He is in my top 32, but I didn't quite have him as, as far as uh, or up with, with that tremendous year that he had at Alabama. I had Cameron Irving, the offensive tackle from Florida State, who actually played every, everywhere on the line this year and actually has been playing center at number 14. Leo Collins, the offensive tackle from LSU, at 15, he has declared. Number 16 took a little bit of flack because I had two running backs in the top 32, and, of course, we've had two years in a row where we haven't had a, a running back taken in the first round. I think we could even see three this year, but I had Todd Gurley as my number 16 prospect, and he did suffer that ACL tear, but I still think he'll be a first-round selection, so uh, probably a first-rounder there. 
Rashad Green, the wide receiver from Florida State, was actually my third receiver on the board, number 17 overall. Isolate Prealamu, the cornerback from Oregon, was my number 18 prospect. He tore his ACL. Uh, another, another one of the players for Oregon we're not going to see tonight, but uh, a lot of people were surprised when he did not make himself available last year. Really a shame because I was not quite as high on him. I thought that he was going to slip a little bit in this draft, but there's just so much athletic ability there. And now I've actually got him as a third-round pick because I still think someone takes a, a flyer on him in the mid-rounds, but unfortunately that ACL injury might shelve him for the year. Uh, his teammate at number 19, I had Ronis Grasu, the center. I had a center in the top 20, and I think there are some teams that are going to be looking at him as a uh, second-round pick. Could be the mm-hmm. first center off the board. P.J. Williams, the uh, corner from Florida State, was my number 20 selection. He looks like a first-rounder, early second-rounder. One guy that I moved up, and uh, not a lot of people had him this high, but he did actually pan out. I can pat myself on the back for this one. Shaq Thompson at number 21. Looks like he will be a first-rounder. He has declared. Amari Cooper was number 22 on my list. I had a great freshman season, kind of tailed off a little bit as a sophomore, but and everything was still there. And, of course, he had that monster year. Heisman finalist. Uh, have him number six overall going to the Jets, but he was number 22 going in. My number 23 prospect was Denzel Perryman, the linebacker from Miami. A little bit undersized, mm-hmm. but I think he will be a second-round second, second round pick. Could slip to the third round, but very solid linebacker. Doesn't have the range, but uh, is, it's just a tackling machine. Uh, so I, I, he will make someone very happy. Uh, Devin Funches at number 24, the tight end slash wide receiver. You know, Michigan started using him as the wide receiver of, in the second half of last season, and then almost a full season keeping a wide receiver there with that 6'5", about 235 frame. He's that flash wide receiver, maybe even a, a tight end. So I had him at number 24. Michael Bennett, who we're going to see tonight, the defensive tackle for Ohio State, was my number 25 player. Deron Smith was number 26, the safety from Fresno State. Very good safety. Looks like he's going to be a solid second-round pick. Did not quite have the, uh, the impact, I thought. As well as number 27, Christian Covington, the defensive tackle from Rice. Now, he has declared... But I've currently got him as a fifth-round selection, really because a lot of teams keyed in on him, and he really suffered a, a knee injury early on this year, played through a lot of pain, did miss some time. I really thought we were going to see him come back for his senior year. He had a monster sophomore season. I really, really liked him. Of course, the lineage, his dad being a Canadian Hall of Famer. But he did make himself available, but we're going to see him in the later stages of the draft. Number 28, a guy that, again, that I had uh, – was betting on this year. He did come through. This is probably a little low for him. Trey Waynes, the cornerback from Michigan State, was at 28. Yeah. Trey Jackson, the guard from Florida State, who's, who's kind of dropped a little bit, might not be the first guard off the board, might be second or third, but I had him at number 29. I had A.J. Johnson, the linebacker from Tennessee, who unfortunately has got some legal issues hanging over his head now. But he was my number 30. Number 31, this one was just sad. I put a lot of thought into Devontae Fields, the defensive end from TCU. He was then dismissed from the program, and this guy may never see the football field again. And it's just, again, this is a guy who I thought had first-round talent. He was the defensive player of the year, the freshman at TCU in the Big 12. Just a monster, monster freshman season. Affecting so much, um, so many good things out of him. Pours me up. 
and unfortunately had to sit out last year. He was coming back this year and really got himself in trouble with the team, and now uh, is his future is in doubt. He's been dismissed from the TCU program. It's really sad to see a guy who, again, you, not often are you going to see a, a player as a freshman in a major conference be the defensive player of the year, and uh, I was really betting on Devontae Fields making himself draft eligible as a redshirt sophomore. That one didn't pan out. My number 32 guy, the last guy out on the board, was T.J. Yeldon, the running back from Alabama. Looks like he'll probably be about the fifth or sixth running back. Derrick Henry took a little bit of his thunder this year. He didn't quite get 1,000 yards, but still T.J. Yeldon. He's still a great running back. But I think some of the other backs like Duke Johnson, like uh, Amir Abdullah, uh, Melvin Gordon, are, are going to either hear their names drafted in front of him. So I think we're going to see Yeldon in the second Probably the third round now, maybe just because the, the running back market's getting a little saturated now. But there we go. That that was my top 32. There were some good calls. There were some bad calls. But I'm, I'm man enough to say that's the way I had it in preseason and see how everything shakes out. One of, one of the guys that you had pretty high was the guard from Duke, Lakin Tomlinson. Lakin Tomlinson, now we have yes. The third round. Yeah, what happened there? He's been up and down. I, I actually am still a little higher on him. I just think that the guard... Uh, the only the only thing with the guard play there is we could see A.J. Cam, the guard from South Carolina, actually going uh, as the top guard, maybe even a Justin Matthias, the, uh, the other guard from – at one point it looked like maybe the Florida State guards were, were going to be 1-2 at that position. But Tomlinson, still an all-SEC performer, like him a lot. Um, I was really on the fence about Jeremy Cass the safety there at Duke. Now he has announced he's going back to school, but he has a chance of possibly being the first uh, the first safety off the board for next year. I think the only guy who I thought going into this year could have rivaled Landon Condon, Collins was Carol Joseph, the safety out of West Virginia. He had a very good year, but he announced he is coming back as well. So I think for next year, uh, Carl Joseph, Jeremy Cash is probably the, uh, going to be battling it out for the, for the top safety on next year's board. But, I do like Tomlinson, uh, but being a, a UNC guy at the, the college level, I still try to maintain an open mind about Duke. But uh, they're turning out some more uh, football prospects there. And uh, just thought that we'd see uh, not quite as, as good in open space as I, as I thought, but uh, he, he's improved his, his pass, protection and, pass protection and his hand placement. So um, he's done well there, but I think he's just a little rigid in that running game. I think that might push him down the board for teams just a little bit. Now there were some guys that I had high on my list. They, um, you know, that were would have had to declare early that I thought would skyrocket up, and they didn't. But they still declared early, and that's uh, Mario Edwards Jr. from Florida State. Um, I thought he had a chance to be dominant. Um, and then Stefan Diggs. I remember how good he was coming out of high school, and um, I think he's he's now becoming another one of those. Maryland wide receivers who leaves early and who's got boomer bust potential, and it'll take a few years to really figure out. Um, those are my two guys who I had pretty high in the first round. I was just going to say one other guy that I had pretty high and I kind of backed off on and put him more in the second round was Jalen Mills out of uh, out of LSU, who I thought at one time could have been seen as the top corner in this class, and unfortunately. Uh, he actually lost his uh, starting job early on, but he's uh, he's been the nickel guy, and he actually played so much that he still declared. Uh, looks like he's uh, he's still going to be a relatively a uh, decent pick. 
but I thought that him and Kevin Johnson, I was actually out of Wake Forest, was kind of like my dark horse. And, and Kevin Johnson actually had a very, very good year. I think there's a possibility he could even sneak into the first round. But I, I think that if there's a couple, a team or two that really falls in love with him, I've got him currently listed as a third-round prospect. But one of those guys from those smaller schools you didn't know a lot about, Anthony Harris, the same way, the safety out of Virginia, who uh, had a pretty solid year. I've still got him, I think, going higher than, than many people think. I've got him in the second round. I think he's a guy that at the combine is going to raise his status from fourth or fifth round to second round overall. But Mills was a guy that had very high as well. But uh, Devontae Fields would have definitely been my, my largest swing and a miss. Yeah, see, that's the thing. A lot of these guys that we say, you know, at this point might be uh, we were wrong on. Well, come the, com- come the combine, anything can happen. I mean, these guys that we have that we think performed at a seventh round level this year, well, they get to the combine, they blow everyone out of the water athletically, and some team ch- takes a chance on them in terms of their uh, their potential. And, you know, that was a lot of guys for me. I mean, you look at the Texas guys, um, and we were talking about cornerbacks. I was big on Quandre Diggs from Texas. I thought he could be a first-round pick. And um, he's the type of guy that you send him into the combine, and he, he just might. He might jump up the, uh, jump up the boards. Cedric Reed out of him in the right system. Absolutely. Another guy I really liked was Byron Jones, the corner out of Connecticut. Unfortunately, he uh, suffered an injury, um, and and that really kind of uh, set him back. But it looks like he will be ready around draft time. Uh, Demetrius Nicholson out of Virginia, who I thought was another good player. I actually had him as a late-round pick, but we've had to remove him now. He was granted the sixth year of eligibility because of the, the injury that he suffered. There's still a, a few good players or, or people that I think can really climb the board that you really got to look out for. Uh, Jay Ajayi, the, the running back from Boise State, I, I think that he's kind of a sleeper as well, a power runner that can really catch the ball out of the backfield. And I think that that's going to be a high commodity. Uh, just having a guy that size that is a legitimate three down back at the NFL level, I think that he's going to open some eyes and he could possibly go higher than a lot of people would have thought. But some of those booms are bust, uh, you know, the Dante Fowlers of the world. we got to see uh, what happens there. And Ronnie Stanley, that's a big name. I want to see if he's going to declare and uh, the, the tackle out of Notre Dame. And then, of course, the, the Oregon defensive ends, Eric, Eric Armstead and DeForest uh, Buckner, if, if either, uh, either one of them or if both declare. I currently have Buckner going back with Armstead declaring and actually going in the second round. But he's definitely a first-round talent. Uh, if you're just going by pure athleticism and size, he's a guy that could be a top-20 pick, top-15 pick possibly, one, one of those guys that really kind of uh, flies up the boards and, and team really falls in love with, and they don't want to take the chance on him not being on the board in the second round when they pick again. There's a lot of cornerbacks that declared early that, that make this cornerback class a little stronger, guys like Ronald Darby and Alex Carter out of Stanford. Um, you know, I think I think it's becoming a stronger class, but I'm, there's still a lot of surprises in this uh, in this underclassman class. I mean, you know, some of the wide receivers like Sammy Coates, Deont- uh, Deontay Greenberry. You know, I, I thought those guys were going to have exceptional years, and uh, I was underwhelmed by them a little bit. But they still declared, and I think a lot of them have in their heads, just like some of these scouts might, that. They were once top prospects, and they can be again. 
So all you have to do is put them in the right system. So I think, you know, I think in their mind they're thinking, well, I'm, I'm still a top prospect in scouts' minds. Even if it was in 2014, 2015 comes along, all I have to do is show them at the combine, I'll be right back in there. So I think that's what, uh, I think that's what a lot of juniors have is their mentality. And, and then they go to sites like ours and they see <laughs> us, uh, ranking them high and they say, well, let's, let's do it. Yeah. And, and sometimes it's just the thought process. We saw, uh, the one name that I, I just updated on the site before I came here uh, uh, for uh, Brashad Perriman, the junior wide receiver out of Central Florida, one of those Sammy Coates types, not catching a lot of balls, but 21 yards to catch. He play threat, 6-2. His father, if that last name rings a bell, Brett Perriman is his father, you know, 10 years in the league. Uh, I just thought that he was really just kind of setting the table to have a monster kind of senior season, and, and that's the guy that was going to be high on the draft. I thought the same of Devontae Booker. You know, I was really talking him up. The more and more I saw him, the running back from Utah, just looking fantastic. He is a junior. There's been some question whether he's going to be a late declaration, but I really think the running back market now is just so saturated. He should come back as a senior. I think he's got the chance to set the table and really have a just a monster season and, and really have a, a great draft uh, place in the draft, which is why I was a little bit surprised we saw a player like Buck Allen, Javoris Allen, the running back out of USC, another guy who I think might be the best receiving running back, maybe even better than J.J.I. in this class. But uh, with him and Cody Kessler, I thought that USC were – I think you talked about them possibly being a top-five uh, team going into next year, that maybe USC was, was pretty close to reclaiming that glory, but they were in the top ten virtually every week. Uh, that might hurt a little bit, but but USC's got a lot of good recruits at the running back position. I was a little bit surprised he declared, but uh, he's another one of those players. And you were talking about the cornerbacks. It's a solid class, but there just isn't a star there yet. But we saw this happen last year with Justin Gilbert. He had the great combine, the great workout, and he kind of shot and, and shot up and was that top player overall. But what I tell people now is, especially the small school guy like me, one of the guys that I'd talked about all year was – uh, Pierre DeSeur from Lindenwood University. And uh, the Browns took him in the third round, and if you looked at the end of the season, Justin Gilbert wasn't the starter. Who was the starter opposite Joe Hayden? It was Pierre DeSeur. So you never want to discount those small school players. The guy with great size didn't have all the uh, – didn't have all the agility. There, there was some question whether he would have to move to safety at the NFL level. But uh, he's definitely shown the Browns something, and he really played well down the stretch. And right now he's actually starting above uh, Justin Gilbert going into next year. And I think there's some great small school cornerbacks that you that we have in the draft right now. Uh, you know, Bryce Callahan out of Rice and um, Ty Smith out of Towson. Yep, and you know, Towson, you're talking about a, a school that actually gave us Terrence West going back to the Browns. They they like those small schoolers. Um. And the other, uh, Isaiah Crowell out of Alabama State, so they they, uh, they hit a home run on a couple of small school prospects. Uh, a Deontay Sanders out of Tennessee State. Tennessee State, small school, they could have three players drafted in this draft. Uh, they're going to be one of the top small schools out there. Uh, they've got a, a number of very good players. Uh, Robert Myers is going to be one of the top uh, offensive linemen from the small school uh, realm out there, another Tennessee State player, so... Yeah, you gotta you gotta watch those uh, those small scores. I still have my money on the linebacker from Harvard being the first small scorer off the board. I currently have him early in the third round of the Jets. 
he could possibly wind up uh, in round two. If you said his name, he, he almost sounds like a Penn State linebacker, doesn't he? <laughs> probably because oh, yeah. he's Harold Hodges. And in, uh, Penn State linebackers, we'll probably hear Mike Hall at the end of the draft, probably a sixth or seventh round pick. Very, uh, if you want to compare him to a Sean Lee, they're a very similar guy that was uh, kind of drafted later and unfortunately can't stay healthy for the Cowboys, but he's got all the talent in the world. Yeah, the Penn State had a few um, underclassmen come out that surprised me. I mean, Jesse James, you know, we talked about that. Donovan Smith and um, Dion Barnes. I mean, they're they're not looking any more than, I don't know, fourth-rounders, right? I actually have Barnes as a seventh-round pick, and I've got uh, Smith and James right now both as fourth-round picks. And and the Jesse James one, to me, is just very frustrating. You know, I'm just very high on Christian Hackenberg. I I said that this was a guy that really reminds me a lot of Matthew Stafford. I called Matthew Stafford being a, a top pick early on, and he wound up being that way. And I was saying the same thing about Hackenberg. I've currently got Hackenberg as the number two quarterback, uh, at the junior level going into next year, I really like what I see out of Gunnar Keel out of Cincinnati, uh, the former Notre Dame quarterback. I've got him number one right now, but, but Hackenberg has all the tools. Not only a guy that can go in the first round, he can be the top overall pick, but there was obviously a disconnect there with the new offense and James Franklin and the regime in Penn State. And you could really see the frustration, but then you just see flashes that first game and that bowl game. He just took over. It's, Ackenberg's got it. You just got to see that on a consistent basis. And, and they've got some very good receiving options. Two very good freshmen they brought in. And Jesse James at 6'7", 255, just looked to be the next Penn State tight end you were going to see. And I really thought that with a, with another year that he could put up some really, really big stats and be the first tight end off the board and possibly a first-round pick next year. I was very surprised he left. So the, declar- uh, the deadline for declaration is this Thursday – is that right, DJ? Anyone else? Uh, who do you think that we haven't mentioned? What might be some of the surprises from tonight's game that might declare? Um, again, I'm 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 seeing Taylor Decker uh, with another big game. The uh, the offensive tackle out of Ohio State. We could possibly hear his name now being added to the to the list. Again, I'm really going to be keeping my eyes. Yeah, everyone's obviously going to be waiting for Marcus Mariota. But uh, I, I really think the, the Oregon defensive line there with the Forrest Buckner and, and Eric Armstead, what are their actual decisions going to be? Again, I currently have Armstead coming out and Buckner going back and enhancing his status for next year. So uh, Ronnie Stanley, the offensive tackle from Notre Dame, that's the other big name that I think we're really, really waiting on because that's a, a guy who could be a top-ten pick and there will be a ripple in the offensive uh, tackle class. It reminds me a lot of Greg Robinson when he declared last year at Auburn as the redshirt uh, sophomore and wound up being number two off the board. Stanley has that type of presence. He definitely looks like a top ten, possible top five guy. I currently have him coming out and going tenth overall to the Rams. So uh, that, that's another big name that we're waiting for. We thought we would get that when Sheldon Day, the defensive tackle, had announced that he was coming back. But uh, still no word from Stanley, so I think he's really on the fence on this one. Thought we would have heard from him. Uh, it's the other big name that I think we're waiting for right now. And I and I could see Stanley being the first tackle off the board. I mean, Brandon Scherf, we, we see every year we have Iowa offensive tackles really high in the mocks. And uh, I know I have every single year for the last, you know, five or six years. Um, 
And for some reason or another, they they drop a little bit, especially the seniors, because GMs and, and coaches get you know start drooling over the potential of the underclassmen who declare. Um, and I think we saw it. You know, Robert Gallery was probably the last really high, really high first round pick out of uh, Iowa in terms of uh, in terms of their offensive tackle. Yeah, and he and he yeah, hasn't been able to stay healthy either. And yeah, and Riley Reef. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I thought in the beginning of the year he could be a top 10, top 5. He ended up going number 23. Um, we talked about Belaga, another guy. You know, I thought he could be a top 10. He ended up going 23 as well. Um, was you know, so I think very early, very early in, in my career as uh, being a draft analyst, but learned a tough lesson with Robert Gallery. I was all over him. Really, really liked him, the athleticism. He was a tight end when he was recruited there. You can't take all the measurables into effect, but I've learned to really be a little more, I'd say, conscious about, uh, I would say, wingspan and arm length. That seemed to be the problem with Robert Gallery. He seemed to be an effective and serviceable guard at the NFL level, but really didn't pay attention to the fact that he had such a short wingspan. Uh, He did not have the long arms, and it turned some teams off. Now, it did not turn Oakland off. They still made him a very high pick. But that's really the word why they think uh, he really struggled was he just did not have the the arm the arm uh, reach or the, the wingspan like some of the other prospects and he really just struggled with his leverage and was just able to uh, get pushed around a little too easily at that tackle position. Yeah, yeah. where where he didn't have to face those uh, speed rushers so much and could stay keep those uh, big guys uh, a little closer to him and, and then Robert Gallery was an effective guard so kind of learned the lesson and uh, last year that was the talk too Darquise Denard. Uh, still was a pretty high pick and had a decent rookie year, but I, I had him as the top cornerback, and then I, I realized that when they did the measurables with him, his his arms were significantly shorter than a lot of the other top prospects. And I was like, oh, this is Robert Gallery all over again. So sometimes it's those little things that people don't realize. And it, Denard was still a first-round pick, but he went a little bit lower than people anticipated, and I think that was that was the main reason. Zach, Zach talks about hand size all the time. I mean, he's obsessed with that when it comes to quarterbacks, and that's why he thinks Johnny Manziel might be the next, the next big thing as to a lot of people in Cleveland. But, um, yeah, there, there are certain measurables that there's a reason, there's a reason that they're looked highly upon. Uh, not because, you know, scouts are being cute. It's because certain measurables are very essential to positions. And every once in a while, you see guys supersede those expectations. But, uh, you know, more often than not, you, you see guys actually fit into the mold. So it is important. I think, you know, we were going back to Robert Gallery. I think actually he brought up a funny thought. If you actually took Oakland out of any of the drafts from, say, 2009 to maybe 2000, um, you might actually have a lot more guys drafted where they were supposed to. And we might not be calling them busts. We might be calling them... You know, guys who played up to par. I mean, Darius Hayward Bay. Had he not been picked seventh and been picked in the seventh round, in the second round like he should have been, maybe he would have uh, Maybe he would have been, you know, a fine for someone. Robert Gallery, same thing, you know. I mean, granted, everyone was high on Gallery then, but, you know, Oakland wasn't in there. Maybe he would have dropped and kept falling into, you know, the late first round. And at that point, he, you know, he wouldn't have been such a bust. He wouldn't have been so wrong. Uh, I think, you know, obviously we all know about Jamarcus Russell. 
Uh, Calvin Johnson was available. They were trying to pick a quarterback. Everyone kind of, most people knew Russell was a big risk. Um, I didn't like him. A lot of people didn't like him. Some people loved him. Michael Huff in 2006, same thing. You know, so Thomas Howard at Utah. I mean, that's Oakland for you in the Al Davis era. So they've been uh, they've been drafting. I don't know, hit or miss. Uh, I didn't love the DJ Hayden pick at number 12. I thought that was a risk. Menelik Watson, I thought was a risk of the you know coming out as a junior. He's done all right. Uh, but their late round picks have been better, and that's where I think you see the presence of, of Reggie McKinley. So I'm looking forward to this draft with all the declarations of the underclassmen. Do we dare talk about our top five for 2016, or is it too early? I think we can do that uh, for next show. I think that's a great topic, and we'll probably do that after we have all the declarations in. And right now, I think we're uh, – it's national championship time, so I think uh, we've got so into this topic that uh, we uh, we need to get uh, watching this uh, this title game. I think we got so wrapped up in this. I agree. I agree. All right. Well, next time we'll uh, obviously we'll we'll be talking about these games and the NFL games. We'll be talking a lot of drafts because these are this is when it starts. Draft season is about to be in full force. So get excited, everybody. And thanks 111 days. Call. 111 days. DJ, DJ <laughs> has a rip-off calendar that he, that he rips off a page every day for the NFL draft. So. Any last words, DJ? No, other than I'm pulling for the Ducks, but hopefully this doesn't cause uh, Zach to go into a depression if the, the Ducks actually win. Of course, if they uh, if the Buckeyes win, uh, Zach will probably be – you can probably hear the smile over the radio. It'll, it'll be so radiant for next week's show. Yeah, and if you're uh, Michigan fans, you might if and the Buckeyes win, you might want to avoid next week's show. Uh, <laughs> actually, you might you might love it. It'll give you fuel for next year. So with Jim Harbaugh there. Anyway, thanks everyone for coming on. Uh, enjoy the game and uh, check out DraftSite.com for all the latest seven round mock draft with compensatory picks. And next few weeks, we'll probably be predicting who those compensatory picks are. Check out the blog. Uh, it's being updated almost every day. DJ is right on top of that with news and notes. And, uh, check out this podcast, past podcast, and um, you're about to hear the song of the day. So everyone, have a great week, and thanks for coming on. I wonder where you